Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sean Penn began his acting career with a brief appearance in Little House on the Prairie in 1974. Since then, he has gone on to star in some of the biggest movies like Bad Boys and is a two-time Academy Award winner for Best Actor for his roles in Mystic River and Milk. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Sean Penn recalls some of the most interesting conversations he's been engaged with, his network of emergency workers and doctors working with CORE, and how CORE has responded to the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Hey, Sean. Hey, how are you? Good. Are you in Los Angeles or where are you? I'm in Los Angeles, yeah. Are, are you an Angelino? Did you grow up out there or where did you grow up originally? Yeah, I'm born and raised here. E- ever wander away to uh, New York or other places or has L.A. been the long haul? Yeah, I spent a few years in New York and, and bounced around pretty much every other state in the country and other places, but mostly New York and Los Angeles. And ever overseas? I know you obviously have done a lot of work overseas. Did you ever actually live overseas for... Uh, a period of time or no? I lived in Haiti for a better part of a year and I've done, and I've been, you know, on, on jobs and some travels that have taken me for several months into other places. But, uh, but, but Northern California, Southern California, New York, in terms of permanent residences. I love that you've been interested in the world and I love that you've always been someone who's kind of been active in the world and not just thinking about what's in your backyard. Uh, what has brought you to that interest in the world? What, what What's taken you to places like Venezuela and places like um, uh, uh, places like Haiti and other parts of the world? Uh, probably privilege. <laughs> the fact that I could get on a plane, that I could make time in my life uh, is is the first excuse. Um, secondly, you know, you, you can you can get I think if anybody is awake, 
you can get a bit drowned in the monoculturalism of what the, the our conditioning here in the United States is, whether it be through, you know, uh, one language culture, principally one language culture. Uh, and, and we also have, I don't know the exact statistics, but somewhere in the area of 30% of Americans is all it is that has passports. So when we hear about world perspectives, we have curiosity about the world. We're hearing it typically from people who've never traveled it. Um, so when I had the opportunity based on, you know, just blessings in my own life to, to travel, you know, I, I think I followed my nose towards uh, areas that, that, that seemed um, to have a, at least at that mo moment a particular connection, whether negative or positive, uh, to my own country and culture, and I wanted to see uh, the other side. And, and did you go on a little bit of, maybe the obvious answer is yes, but tell me a little bit, I assume there was a little bit of a political evolution and awakening uh, that you had. Was there a moment or an event that caused you to become more engaged in politics and life and the world and thinking about questions like privilege, or was it a gradual thing? Well, I think it, it has a lot to do with, and I suppose everybody has their own version of this story, but but I can do the math so easily because my birth year ends in a zero, and it was 1960. So I grew up as a child when the Vietnam War was the, the war show on television um, and covered in a way that we saw in diminishing ways in, in wars that followed, uh, where as a young kid, you're seeing it both on television, you're hearing it in family discussions, and you're also seeing it. Uh, based on the muscle cars that are up on blocks in the driveways of uh, the older brothers that were off overseas fighting. Uh, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, and, and, and uh, there were a lot of young men uh, uh, that were over, overseas fighting, and, and, and many that never returned to those muscle cars up on blocks. So it was, it was part of, uh, you know, early development to ask a lot of questions and to to also have a certain skepticism about the adult brain that would bring us to or accept wars. And, and were your dad and mom similar? Did they also bring that kind of skepticism to the game? Or was this something that you got to on your own or on your own along with your friends? Well, I think in particular, in any kind of political or activist vein, my father would have been the, the, the principal on that. And and not the not the least because he had you know grown up in the last era of universal hardship in the United States, which was the Depression, and then came forward in the uh, in, in the civil rights working with the civil rights movement, the unionization movement, and ultimately blacklisted after having fought for his country because he's a first generation. Lithuanian, Spanish Lithuanian, uh, and so to go over, he he flew thirty seven missions on a seven mission life expectancy. I think their unit broke the record, and their uh, their aircraft was disabled twice, having to kind of uh, um, stumble back over Allied lines, um, and then to come back to this country and not be allowed to work because of uh, a certain kind of social democratic belief systems. Uh, but my father was somebody who was never bitter about that. He always saw it as a kind of uh, 
you know, a learning curve for a country he had deep belief in. And um, I, I took more time to get to really focusing on these things. I had sponged a lot of that off of him and had those interests sort of or, or feelings, uh, you know, in my cells somewhere, I guess. But I think that I was much more self-involved as a young man and able to be because there was no depression. I, I grew up middle and lower middle class, but safe and, uh, and, and an extraordinary childhood uh, and, and, and young adulthood. Um, we had not, my generation had not, you know, widely known discomfort uh, as, as, the, as his had. And so I think it took me moving towards really, I think finally towards once I had children and was forced, you know, between a rock and a hard place to consider where the world was going to go forward. Sean, who have you had the most interesting conversations with about politics, about life, about what can and should be? Because, and I say that knowing that you've had a variety of people you've been fortunate enough to talk to. And so you have a wider, you know, you have a wider almost a wider lens maybe than some of us get. Who have you had some of the most interesting conversations with for your money? You know, I'm going to say it's two things. I've had it with, uh, you know, the people that I'll generalize as the poets I've had the opportunity to know, be that great actors or or literally poets, philosophers, uh, who who, who inevitably tap into the parts of uh, our, our individuality that hungers to have a free imagination to consider all things dark and light and to find our, ourselves in the, you know, our place in it. And then I would say also my most conservative friends, but people who are, I've met around the world who have lived a life of service, uh, whether it's service to their church, service to their military, service to their country, um, you, you know, what, what, we, what we quickly call good people who in fact are, uh, though their frame of reference might have been on the imaginarium more limited than the things I, I was exposed to. Um, I think that those, two, those are the two. And then when it comes to, uh, you know, perspectives that are completely unique, uh, where it's not, uh, you know, people, for example, I had some of my greatest experience and connections and, you know, conversations that really provoked me uh, with 19-year-old Haitians uh, who had had a completely different experience or, you know, or, or and, and, uh, you know, seeing how families connect in the Middle East, um, seeing the belief system in populists even, uh, in Latin American countries where prior to certain um, what are often called regimes, there had been no identification for, the, for, the, for most of the people in that country at large at all, no access to education or health care. So it's, it, it's having all of those things that one benefited from, especially as a white American, um, shaken up so that and and i and i think i pursued being shook up uh because there were clearly things that uh were right about what was going on in my country of birth and there were clearly things that were systemically wrong 
that were going on and continue but on both sides of that. So it was really, I think that I, if I have, uh, you know, one defining factor um, and I don't have it alone, but I think if I were, you know, carving it on my gravestone, it would be, um, I, I don't want to be sure till I've heard from the other side. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. That's a nice one, Sean. I love that. It's a little poetry talking about your uh, your poets there. What did you learn from that 19-year-old Haitian, or what do you remember uh, uh, from that conversation with, with one or several uh, folks there? Because obviously that's a special country. It's got an interesting history, obviously a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma recently. Um, it's nestled in an interesting neighborhood, meaning the other countries around it. What did you hear from uh, from that young fellow? Well, I'll give you sort of two anecdotal stories rather than statements, although one of them involves a statement. Uh, so one that involves a young man who came from nothing and who came up to our tent camp after we had embedded in the IDP camp after post-earthquake 2010 in Haiti and had wanted to come and, and uh, had seen us working uh, for a couple of weeks in the camp that he had resided in with his family, with what was left of his family after the earthquake. And he came up and said, you know, it seemed to him that we were, you know, genuine in our in our hope to give his country a boost. And he wanted to work with us to help his country. And long story short, in this period of chaos that was the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, I found myself... Uh, getting involved in things I'd never thought I'd get involved in. Uh, in this case, in particular, the the ordering of mobile x-ray machines from a vendor in the United States. And we knew we needed one because I had come in contact with a Dr. Sue Barger who had written the disaster medicine, uh, kind of the, the definitive book, a Harvard fellow who was over there running the DMAT at a formerly infectious disease clinic, ironically today enough, in Port-au-Prince. And she had said that that's one of the needs that their hospital had. And so at that time, I was kind of looking for anybody of, uh, of who had awareness of what the needs were and trying to gap fill. And it occurred to me as I was talking to my old high school best friend back here in the States on a sat phone from Port-au-Prince in the middle of the night saying, you got to track down a a vendor that sells uh, mobile x-ray machines, hey, you might as well get two because we had opened up a, a, a tent hospital in the camp at that time. We weren't sophisticated, but we had a few doctors volunteering with us. And, um, and uh, so, well, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, uh, these two uh, mobile x-ray machines arrived. And I figured ours would stay in a box until it came of use. And it was the middle of the night again as I went with a couple others in the back of a pickup truck to deliver to Dr. Barger this uh, uh, x-ray machine down at uh, the DMAT hospital, which would have normally been about a 20-minute drive, but because of the rubble and wire at that time with all of the, what had fallen in the earthquake, it was about a two-hour drive. Delivered the x-ray machine and came back up to our tent camp that night uh, just before... Uh, dawn. And I would typically go down to the tent hospital and check in on, you know, if the nurses or doctors needed a bottle of water or anything I could bring to them to say hello and thank you and that sort of thing, get a sense of what we had in there for patients. And, and as I was walking out 
I peripherally noticed a light board and on the light board was an x-ray and I said, what's this? And what had happened is that that young Haitian that I mentioned at the beginning of the story, when we left to go deliver the thing and we had a round trip of about, I guess round trip about three hours. By the time I got back, he had read the instruction manual and he started processing x-rays up there in a tent uh, out in the open in Port-au-Prince. Um, so I just didn't think, I never had had an experience where, you know, for, for me, a percent, my perception of getting an x-ray machine up and running was something that took training at a medical school for a few months or years. Uh, and in fact, in the United States, it would. Um, I asked Dr. Barger to send out uh, uh, an x-ray tech the next day. And in fact, this young man had had read it and done it right and safely with the lead vests and all of that. And, uh, and then, and today he is a certified x-ray tech here in the United States. Um, that kind of, that was uh, uh, not something I did. That kind of fortitude was not something that comes from a comfort addicted society. It comes from a, I must, I, I, I have to take responsibility society if things are going to get better for myself or my family. And that's what he did. The other, the other one was with the uh, incoming president of Haiti uh, after the Preval administration, President Martelli, where we were in a cholera epidemic and there was a lot of social unrest. And we had had doctors taken captive. Uh, it was a lot of uh, outlaw um, stuff going on. And uh, weapons were building back up in a country that had been largely disarmed of long barrel weapons. and in 2003, and the paramilitaries were returning and so on. So we had a lot of chaos, and it occurred to me, to me as an American, uh, we cannot afford, um, you know, revolution in the middle of a cholera epidemic where you may have, we had hurricane threats, we had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, rubble and, and other things that could be projectiles in a hurricane, it was just not a place uh, to be righteous politically. It was a place to be very practical, in my view. And I went to speak to that candidate who later became president, and I remember him being very polite until I said what I just said to you. And he, in, a sense, in, in essence, got very angry. And he said, basically, what we want to tout here in the United States, give me liberty or give me death. And he said, give me cholera uh, or give me liberty. And he was not interested in hearing my perspective on whether or not revolution was needed. And it immediately occurred to me, you know, you don't know so much, Sean. Uh, take some time and learn more. Interesting. Interesting. Do you have a, do you, do you find that you, you say that uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by your willingness to hear from other people that's hard for a lot of us, or at least it's perceived as being hard for a lot of us. Have you gotten better at that over time? Are you someone with, I think because of some of the characters you play, people perceive you as having a quick temper. Um, but the, what you're describing is someone who actually has to be a little patient and has to be a little willing to hear. Are you a quick temper person? Are you able to hear from people who disagree with you strongly? I lead with arrogance. That's my nature. <laughs> That's uh, a great line. I love that. That's a great line. That's good. I have good ears for provocative thoughts. And I am um, always anxious to get, I, I wouldn't say anxious. I would say 
in the extremes where people's lives depend on it, I know that I'm a very small piece of the human puzzle. And being reminded of that by somebody who has a clear thought from a very different perspective is a humbling thing. And, and it's at that point that you, that you really find you're starting to think about something in a real way for the first time. And then, you know, you may find yourself uh, moving back towards a, uh, your own position. Uh, more often than not, it's a modified one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you think about President Trump's success? And, and I know that's a big, broad, open-minded question, but I know I can tell just from this conversation that you're someone who looks at things from a variety of different angles. How do you, how do you think about President Trump's success, not only getting elected the first time, but then having another 70 million plus people experience four years with him and say, 
yep, I want more. Let's do this again. Well, the success is revealing the ugliest part of the American soul. The success is being the leading edge of a, of, of a kind of um, a flood, a flood of poison water that we'd built societally for a long, long time. The success is uh, exampling that which, whilst uh, that which can only be embraced in an acknowledgement of a culture of cowardice and a kind of um, toxic racism, um, a self-celebration, an entitlement. He is every he is everything most simple that is actually that we have we have come to call success, even in his business career, that never had anything to do with a spiritual success, and I separate that from a religious one, but in the sense of you know, there is no aspect of what he brought that that was the the rising of kind-hearted culture, of generosity, of love, of humanity, of care. It's instead narcissism, solipsism, sociopathy, hatred, snake oil salesman. Uh, and it is the ugliest part of a beautiful culture that we have in the United States, of a beautiful system or experiment of governance that we have in the United States. But he really is only the face of it. And there's a complicity that all of us have had to look in the mirror. I know, for example, you know, I, I'm, 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 I am a, still a sucker for the silver lining. And, you know, in all the ways I thought I was or had evolved notions socially, politically, They've really been challenged in the last four years and certainly in the last year. You know, when, when we look at, you know, I'm as cynical as anybody about movements. You take it from the kind of the, the side of the Me Too movement, which was a lot of uh, self-satisfying uh, speechifiers. And then you look at the real side that's always been here. You look at the George Floyd murder, which is the only thing that anybody can refer to it as, a murder. And you find that this, these, under these, without any safety valve, without a, a noble, an elegant leadership, despite political flaw, statesmanship, with Donald Trump at our helm, you're on your own to recognize your own complicity. And I think it demanded it more. And that's the silver lining. To check in with how you may dismiss things for their pendulum swing radicalism too easily and not find ways to offer yourself to the balance that will lead the justifiable equality of man and woman forward. And I think, and I think this is in the ether now. I really feel, you know, at 60 years old, I'm <laughs> sort of 
glad I got to indulge uh, some of the pettiness of what I'd been. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm, I'm more excited for my children that they won't, that the options will be better than indulging pettiness. I, I really hope that's right. Um, it's funny, Sean. I've, I've been saying to a lot of people that I feel like some of the – you talked about unleashing a flood of uh, – you called it polluted water, I think, uh, or poisonous water. And, and I've said to a lot of people that I think the tumult that we saw in the last year or last several years is just the beginning. It's not the end. And so I think the water is still going to come. Um, and I'm a silver lining guy, as as are you. And I'm hopeful. I call the 2020s. I hope they'll be the new 60s. I hope that we will end up reckoning with these things and that your kids and lots of others will get to a meaningfully different place, not just kind of incrementally different. In your ideal world, if you were able to help us think creatively about where we could be, maybe where we should be, what would you like to see be true at the end of this decade? What would make you feel like we took some difficult situations, difficult moments, pandemics, racism, all the other things, and turned it into something much better than people would have expected. What would, what would good look like if you were to try and help us with a vision for what 2030 or whatever is the right way to think about it could look like? Well, I think that I, would, I have a, a, a continuing or a pattern of responses to that that are less about uh, prophecy of where we'll go or hope for where we'll go in the, in the final vision than it is about how we get there. And you'll forgive me the idealism in this, but I think it's about moratorium on technology until we learn how to use it. I think it's about a constitutional convention, uh, uh, international one, on issues of preserving humanity uh, through the use of technology rather than replacing humanity with technology. Technology has always been an extraordinary tool. From the days that, that excited Edward R. Murrow about television, but we didn't say, stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. We didn't have the humility to stop and say, we, this is bigger and faster than our brains, certainly than any individual brain. And we really got to be concerned about the individual in each of these things. Uh, George Washington got a long way at 13 years old writing the rules of civility in candlelight without um, Google. I think that we can get along just fine in a moratorium on excessive use of technology to just take a minute and get together, say what's the right way to, to use this and develop it. Now, given that that is idealism, that we're unlikely to get there, we're, we then become sort of subject to a history of, of fate. You look at the mRNA technologies of vaccines. Uh, this is a gigantic jump in uh, fighting this COVID thing, but it's been about, I think it's about 17 years of research that went into this long before warp speed. Um, and... The, the, expon the exponential uh, rate at which these things are achieved may buy us time. The, the, the existential part of it, of course, I think generally people are coming uh, by hook or by crook to recognize is in climate, in, uh, climate uh, change. Um, you know, we are always 
been a, 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 a species that relies on being pushed to our limit before we push the limit. And I think that, you know, that until, you know, the crap's coming in under your door or your coastline is being chipped away and, and underwater or these storms come and kill too many of one's family, we're really not going to get the message and, and, uh, and those who are most privileged will get it last. Um, I'm hoping that somewhere between some at least elevated response to or will to be humbled by technology, some maybe not a full moratorium, but a, a, a sector of our demand, of our human lobby, Forcing our eyes on that, a, a, a something where we get blessed with a little will for attrition in certain ways, that bit by bit we kind of find more common ground and uh, are able to move on into a paradise that we've never seen or believed could happen given all the damage that's been done it. The George Carlin thing about, you know, the, 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 the world's fine. It's us that are going to fall off of it, I think is certainly uh, the case. And, and, uh, and we don't want to be the, the first century that mankind doesn't complete, which is the, the Norman Mailer warning. Uh, so we'll see at 60, I get to sit back and hope. Yeah. I love that. I love, uh, I love that. And I love your, uh, your willingness and your ability to uh, to quote a wide range of uh, uh, of people uh, into it. I heard you quote uh, Hunter Thompson. Uh, what's that great quote from uh, Hunter Thompson? I heard you uh, uh, say the other day. Uh, and then there's the bad part. What was that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can't remember it now. But it was it was it, it's it's like you know on. In America, where we drag, uh, you know, good men by their insides and this, 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 all of that. And then he says, and then there's the bad part. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I appreciate it and, uh, and enjoyed that. Hey, tell me how you started getting involved with some of the um, vaccine distribution efforts around court. Was that, was that something that was a long time in the works? Is that something new that you helped, uh, you helped set up in response to, uh, to this moment? So CORE, which we'd started in Haiti, uh, and we then started moving into the hurricane belt in the southern states, the Gulf, uh, here in the United States, in Puerto Rico and Bahamas, uh, responding mostly to hurricanes at that point. Um, and, and not only responding, but uh, preparing. We started doing cert uh, uh, trainings of uh, uh, what are commonly considered marginalized communities, uh, trying to build trust between police departments and and uh, uh, communities uh, that where, where those uh, uh, entities were at odds, uh, starting with young men and women in those communities and and those of the willing within those police departments initially in Savannah, Georgia, um, and the getting a readiness for hurricane prevention. Um, we. Found very early on, and, and in, in that work, we were we were not uh, coming in as a, like deploying as a bunch of outsiders into the place. We came with a bit of technical advice and some financial resources. Found existing organizations in those communities, and uh, kind of took their lead how we could you know work together and build these things. Very quickly thereafter, Hurricane Matthew hit in the Carolinas. 
And the contract we made with the young people that we trained, the young people that were of uh, adult age and up, of 18 and up, because we started younger, but the contract was that if you were in the group that was 18 and up, whether or not the next hurricane hit your community, you would, in exchange for the training that you got, the certification that you got, you would willingly be deployed within 250 miles of home. And it, it, was, a, it was a kind of an idea that we started very small. And within a couple of months, Hurricane Matthew hit and to see about 100 of these young kids come down from Savannah down into Lumberton uh, uh, and, and start doing muck outs, distribute hygiene kits and so on. And that was, the, that was what CORE was developing throughout a lot of vulnerable areas uh, in and out of the Caribbean and the United States. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit and we went to uh, um, uh, Governor Newsom here in California and raised our hand. Uh, uh, we had also worked, as I had mentioned, in the cholera epidemic in Haiti. So we'd had some experience with infectious disease and uh, we thought we might be able to uh, recruit some help. And we, at that point, um, on the um, continental United States, only had a team of seven people and seven employees. We were mostly uh, in, in Haiti and, and, and other areas and full-time staff. And uh, we, uh, so then we were able to just get very um, aggressive with our recruitment. And now we have 1,500, we've worked in 47 uh, part, uh, locations, site locations in the testing space across the country and most significantly in Fulton County, Georgia, and in Los Angeles. Uh, in Los Angeles, we were able to kind of model this, this partnership between existing governance with the Los Angeles Mayor's Office and the Los Angeles Fire Department, where they had begun to set up test sites, but they were having to man them with these high skill set firefighters. Uh, who had other things to do to serve the population here. And we were able to replace them um, about 10 to 1 on each of these sites and work with them to evolve the, the way the sites work and, and so on. And very early on, in partnership with the fire department, we started having discussions and planning discussions about what it might mean when and if a vaccine came along the transition from testing to vaccination. And... And as I sit here today in Los Angeles, we'll push through about 12,000 vaccinations uh, between our fixed sites and our mobile sites in L.A. alone. Nice, nice. And, and, and talk about what you've, you've learned uh, 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 about the going forward of that, particularly as we start to hear about variants, the South African variant and others. Do you expect that the work that's going to be needed from you guys is actually going to accelerate, or are you expecting that you're kind of in a – and, and perhaps, uh, you know, you'll be busy for six months, but, but you'll be able to redeploy those people and that, those talents elsewhere. I'm going to say it's both. I, I, you know, we're going to have a we'll, – we'll, there'll, be, there'll be a little of both. I do think that, you know, that the, the, the uh, outlook is, is pretty good right now, although the variants, you know, where, where, where variants may become more virulent is the biggest fear. Uh, right now, from my understanding, which is n not a uh, 
a special understanding. It's, you know, it's as news outlet based as it is expert based from people I talk to. But it seems that the time just hasn't been there to, you know, we all know that that even the vaccinated may continue to be able to spread the virus. Uh, we know that, that with the different variants, we are, it seems that we are fairly protected even with, but from the South African with these mRNA technologies and that they are very adaptable. So it would not be a very long time. So the way we, a long time before they'd be able to pivot to uh, a booster that would cover us. Uh, we do know how to protect ourselves and others. We don't do it very well culturally. In fact, we do it miserably uh, in terms of the masking and distancing and uh, those basic things. Some of us out of a kind of selfish denial, others out of a necessity because of the, the kind of workplace and the, the needs that people have, people that live in multi-generational housing, all of those target uh, populations who are in the most need. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sean, you know, it's interesting about um, CORE and about the work that you're doing. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with Bill Gates a few weeks ago where he said, a little bit like you have firehouses um, where you have groups of uh, firefighters who are there and ready whenever a fire breaks out. Um, so there's a little bit of weakness to the system in that they're not always busy, but you sure do want them when it happens. He said the same thing should be true with virus fighters, um, that, that he thought that there were going to be, unfortunately, waves of viruses that we would see uh, over the next decade or two. And consequently, he thought we effectively needed to do what you've already done, it feels like, which is kind of create a core of people who are trained and ready and might move from area to area to help people out. Have you ever had that conversation with him or with others and about the long-term importance of, of what core could be to, you know, what may be successive waves of, uh, of viruses? Yeah, here's what I would say first about Bill Gates is that so significantly, and there are very few, um, you know, this is somebody who has not only put his money where his mouth is, but his significant mind in studying and understanding the most complicated dy- dynamics uh, on the level that understands uh, not only the, the practical, but the social dynamics necessary to uh, deal with whether it was malaria in, in sub-Saharan Africa or all of the other things that he's gotten into. I've, I'm a big appreciator of the investment he's made far beyond the financial commitments of his foundation. And he's a, he's a very provocative thinker. What I would say, and I don't think he would take exception to this, is that it goes beyond virus fighters. It goes into climate cores. It goes into and, and I think what you can really bring it down to and what, what my mind is on is that we've become a world that can no longer uh, deny it needs citizen participation. Government, governments alone cannot do what it will take to provide a secure, a safety net for futurism, for, for our children, for our grandchildren. Uh, for the beauty of the world, for the breathability of the world. And it does, it's not just viruses, it's oxygen, it's wa- clean water. Um, and, it's, and it's social. It's, you know, all of these extremes that we've come up against. And so it's my hope, you know, that, that in our own small way, that what CORE is looking to model is uh, citizen service. And I believe that there are, there are a lot of ways to skin this cat. Uh, I think, you know, if you go back to the GI Bill as it related to military service in World War II, that there can be incentivized, um, college tuitions can be paid if you put in a couple of years of service. And that service can be in forestry, it can be in elderly care, it can be in anything that you can imagine. It can be in virus, it can be in wildfire prevention. But we're, you know, we, we've got to learn to dress up prevention as sexy. And that's been a problem in this country for a very long time. And, uh, and it's something I, you know, we'll be pushing in our own little way. Uh, but what most, the biggest way we can do it is in sharing the model. And I bring up the Los Angeles partnership in particular, because this is where a partnership of faith 
came very quickly with local governance uh, in, in something that is not traditionally, uh, it, it, you know, pre-COVID, if you raise your hand and say, hey, we want to train up in a day and get uh, 85% of your firefighters back on the street to do skill sets that are, in, you know, to some part of the public health field. That's, you know, as a, as a country, we're always, no, 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 no. I want to know, I want to see your certificate on the wall. Guess what? We won't have time. And there are some common sense skill sets that can be taught very quickly. And there's also a generation of inc- incredible will, which is what we've seen with uh, the, the staff we have that began as volunteers and all of whom come out of their own, you know, their community within which they then work, you know, and really are define core. Uh, far more than I define core. Core is a is an idea we offer, and if it's accepted, it's taken on and led by the local community, and we help to resource it. And then it's also, um, you know, the the architecture of it is nimble in the sense that they say, yes, I like I like the the spirit of what you're offering, but none of the way you've done it before will work in my community. And we then say, okay, show us how, and uh, and and take it like that. And I am, what I'm hoping is that we build, you know, a, a, a replicable model uh, going forward. And I hope that you know, leadership in this country uh, moves towards inspiring um, um, policy that will uh, encourage service. Hey, why don't I finish up with a little bit of rapid fire, if you don't mind? Sure. Uh, Sean, who's the most intriguing world leader you've ever met? Fidel Castro and Bill Clinton. Oh, give it to me. Why? Why both? Well, I, I think with Fidel Castro, because his the the engine of his passion, his political passions, is so much more aligned with that mortal enemy called the United States. His love of Franklin Roosevelt, of of initially of John F. Kennedy. Uh, the little boy who wrote Roosevelt a letter asking for a $10 bill U.S. His political genius was, you know, and of course that puts me in a position of that I'm someone who can identify political genius. So what I'm really saying is what for me was uh, uh, he he had extraordinary um, philosophical depth politically. Um, going back to his books of prison letters, uh, a recommended reading for anyone, um, no matter what your political uh, thoughts were. None of this is an apologia for the worst of what happened with the revolution or, or him, but it certainly was an extraordinary person to spend time with. And Bill Clinton, um, it, it, you, you know, I, it, you could answer this in terms of a head of state. You could answer it in terms of someone who, for whatever flaws people perceive in him and for whatever triumphs uh, people perceive in him, certainly was able to rep- represent the kind of aspirational leadership um, as a communicator in an extraordinary way, but more so just as an individual I, to meet him, you know, later, I, I had met him once as president of the United States. I got to know him principally after his presidency. 
And uh, all the rumors one hears are true, which is that the end product of an incredibly curious life is that there is no subject he can't speak on knowledgeably. And so I found that extraordinary. Your favorite film role you've ever had? Um, <laughs> I, could be, I could say the next one, um, but, but it's not. Um, <laughs> I... I, I, I I don't know that I've, I've had favorite experiences, several of them. So it's a little hard to hunt down which would I, uh, I call my favorite film role. Best advice you've either gotten or that you would give to someone who's trying to dream fearlessly? You know, Charles Bukowski is buried in San Pedro. And, and I had the privilege of becoming very close with him in the last 10 years of his life and was a pallbearer at his funeral. And it wasn't until... Uh, the day of the funeral that I saw that his incredible wife, Linda, had fulfilled his uh, request of what would be uh, engraved on his gravestone. And it says simply, don't try. <laughs> Love it. There's so many ways you could go with that. Um, uh, final question for you. You're an Angelino, grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Sometimes we forget about wondrous things. We think about all the beautiful things that are far away, but we forget about things that are close to us. What are some of the magical places or some of the even simple but great places that you've come to enjoy in and around the Los Angeles area over the years? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I would have given this away uh, until very recently because it's not likely I'm going to be banging over there too much, but right in the middle of Topanga Canyon. If you go up old Topanga Canyon Road about three miles, you come on to where there's a rock wall on the left, and you can make a quick U-turn. You got to make it quick because there's a bend there, and you don't want to have a car come around and hit you. It's not a very well-traveled road, but cars do come every you know, minute and a half or so, you'll have a car zipping through there. And if you bring um, a little uh, uh, excavating tool, uh, you can climb up into that rock wall and start chipping, and you will find the most extraordinarily defined fossils of a time when Los Angeles was underwater, uh, sea life fossils in that sedimentary rock that are, uh, they, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a gimme. Uh, it's a great place to bring kids to because the satisfaction is, is, is inevitable. You, you don't go up there and not find fossils. You chip a little into that rock, you start finding. So that, I think that's the one through my childhood into now that's probably immediately comes to mind. Uh, uh, hey, Sean, I so appreciate you and I appreciate the work you do. Thank you. Uh, for the work you do, whether it's on the vaccines or on other things as well. And just thank you for spending a little bit of time with me today. It was, uh, it was good to get to meet you. Back at you. Thanks very much. Okay. All right. Be safe. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elia connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 